So the idea was, let's find some intel on this guy that at the very least could embarrass him. And I think the Democratic operatives and activists thought, if we can dig up something really embarrassing on Thiel, maybe we, not that we keep the Senate, but like maybe Peter Thiel exits politics altogether. It was, it was intense. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, July 13th. Today, we're doing something a little different on the pod. Editor extraordinaire Ben Landy is here to talk to Teddy Schleifer about his incredible reporting on the opposition research campaign into right-wing billionaire Peter Thiel, a liberal search and destroy mission that ended with a tragic twist. And later, Dylan Byers gives me the download from Sun Valley, where the moguls and their private jets are descending on billionaire summer camp. We'll dig into all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life welcome back everybody i'm ben landy talking to the one and only teddy schleifer hey teddy hey ben teddy i wanted to talk to you about this piece that you just published for puck which um you've been reporting for some time and that is the story behind a story published by the intercept about a young man who'd been Peter Thiel's boyfriend, who he, he'd actually tragically killed himself after battles with his mental health. That Intercept story had sort of insinuated that, that maybe Thiel was to blame in some way. In your reporting, you discovered a lot more going on involving this sort of sprawling Democratic opposition research campaign that had enlisted this young man in an attempt to take down Thiel. It's really a profound piece of reporting. I want to encourage people to actually go out and read it on the website. But tell me, first of all, how you landed on this story, how it, how it came together and how it came to you in the first place. So Ben, when this guy, Jeff Thomas died, 
a friend of a friend of his reached out to me anonymously and said that there were things to look into with regards to Jeff Thomas's death, which was rendered a suicide, according to a police report. And that began like a three or four month expedition through Instagram, through OnlyFans at one point, through the social scene in West Hollywood that Jeff operated in, and trying to understand the circumstances of his death and kind of what he was dealing with in the last couple of months. Um, he, he took his life this past March. And, and what we found was a fascinating window into kind of the sausage making of modern politics and, and the ways in which opposition research works, the ways in which journalism can kind of use oppo and can use Instagram and can use sort of the dark arts to bolster a trail of reporting. And the piece is not going to be summarizable in our minutes together. And I do really encourage people to read it at Puck. It's a story that I think says a lot about media. It says a lot about politics. And I think ultimately says a lot about a person. And then, you know, lots of journalism is is talking to people on, on the worst days of their lives. That's not all journalism, but that's, that, that's a part of journalism. And um, this was a, a difficult story for me to do personally, but I thought, was an important peek behind the curtain about how the real world works, which is not always as things appear in front of the curtain. Yeah. And to your credit, I think you handled this really delicately and really sensitively. It is a tough story to report. Tell me a little bit more about sort of who was actually funding this campaign, what what they were trying to accomplish here. Sure. So the, the main character in the story is a guy named Jack Bury, um, who is a Democratic operative. He spent a little bit of time, I guess you could say he's dabbled in journalism. And Bury is most well-known in political circles, if you ask around about who this guy is, as an ally of someone people have heard of named David Brock. Brock is sort of like the godfather of modern-day oppo research. He, uh, of course, is a former Republican turned Democrat ally of the Clintons. I don't think it's unfair to say he's one of the top Democratic operatives in the game today, but he's older and he has lots of kind of allies that are sometimes collectively referred to as the Brocktopus, who sort of carry out his projects. So Brock was not involved in this day-to-day operation into Peter Thiel, who we're going to talk about in a second, but Bury is was sort of doing it with Brock's endorsement and, and Brock's involvement, got lots of donors to participate in this scheme in the first place. So as I understand it, the, the idea that Bury had was essentially to, to go out and talk to people who had interacted with Teal in his active social life in West Hollywood, to talk to people who had attended his parties, uh, to, to boyfriends, to ex-boyfriends, to see if there was something potentially embarrassing or salacious that they could expose or report about Teal, presumably with the intention to, to undermine him publicly in some kind of way. That's right. So the timing here is important. This was all, or this began in, I think, late summer, early fall of last year. Bury went out to West Hollywood, was spending a lot of time there. They had a physical office, and he kind of got a lot of Democratic activists in West Hollywood who were watching the news and seeing Peter Thiel spend millions of dollars, 30 million, 35 million bucks, to elect these two protégés in the 2022 midterms, J.D. Vance in Ohio, Blake Masters in Arizona. And these guys who are committed Democrats, some of them working professionally in politics, some of them not saw Peter Thiel as a threat to democracy, you know, the same way that 
a previous generation of Democrats saw Charles Koch or Sheldon Adelson as threats to democracy. So the idea was, let's find some intel on this guy that at the very least could embarrass him. And they genuinely believed in kind of the righteousness of, of their mission. And they were out there interviewing other predominantly gay men in West Hollywood to see what they could dig up. It was a novel campaign in some ways. I mean, there were donors behind it. There were donors who would make payments for, you know, small payments. So like not, you know, these are not millions of dollars, but payments for, you know, people's time to cooperate, especially if they had like screenshots of Facebook messages that Peter Thiel might have sent them or Instagram, I think was a huge part of how they sort of tried to understand this entire social scene. And one of the people they came across during this months-long mission was Jeff Thomas. They found Jeff, who was a former boyfriend of Peter Thiel's, right around Election Day in, in those last couple of weeks. And our story sort of looks at the ways in which Jeff cooperated with this effort at first and then had second thoughts. And it really weighed on him, the fact that he had cooperated. And, and Thiel, who was sort of you know, had other priorities at the time. He was trying to elect JD and Blake. Like Teal was was becoming aware of what was happening because Jeff Thomas told him at one point. You know, we have this scene in our story in, in November 15th when Jeff basically confesses to the whole thing. There were other people in West Hollywood who were approached by this campaign who like went public about the whole thing on Instagram, naturally, and people were forwarding that to Teal. So you have this kind of match behind this camera between Peter Thiel and allies of David Brock in the run-up to election day and in the immediate aftermath, it was an intense back and forth with really high stakes because I think the Democratic operatives and activists thought if we can dig up something really embarrassing on Thiel, maybe we, not the, not that we keep the Senate, but like maybe Peter Thiel exits politics altogether. So it was, it was intense. From your reporting, Teddy, it does sound like Thomas was conflicted in some ways about his relationship with Teal. He was living in this very expensive house that Teal paid for. He drove his, you know, a fancy sports car, but he also said that he felt like a kept man in some ways. Is your sense that that is sort of what drove him to talk to these interviewers in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I know the way he described it to other people was that he thought he was almost talking to Teal directly. He felt like he had control in a way that he ordinarily did not. And, you know, the, the Democratic operatives were very aggressive. We have text messages in, the, in this story that show, I don't want to say coercion, but like they, they knew what they were doing in trying to kind of dangle opportunities and, and money in front of Jeff Thomas to, to maybe get him to cooperate. There was talk about a book deal that like you can get a three to four million dollar book deal and we'll help you make it happen. Stuff like that. And, and Thomas was not aware of kind of the way the politics work. Like every friend I've talked with has said that Jeff never really had any interest in politics, didn't follow it closely. But I think to these Democratic operatives, they were able to capitalize on the fact that Jeff Thomas did indeed feel kept. And uh, ultimately, they succeeded in getting him to cooperate, at least at least briefly. And Teddy, these operatives were working with Ryan Grimm, the, the reporter at The Intercept. Right. So the operatives who were trying to kind of take this raw intel were working to package it and vet it and chip it as oppo people do, like I'm not naive to the way that the game works, to Ryan Grimm, who is an influential reporter, especially in progressive circles, has a lot of power at The Intercept. And the idea was maybe Ryan would run it before the election. And he did not. Obviously, running a story like that is extraordinarily difficult. Peter Thiel is obviously extraordinarily litigious and the, the shadow of Gawker casts pretty long. 
and Ryan didn't run it. Maybe, maybe to his credit, I mean, I guess it depends on, I don't know what reporting he has. And that's part of the challenge of, of frankly, even writing about this is like, we're sort of writing about a story that hasn't ever run. And that's, it's difficult to explain whether or not Ryan should be running a story or should not be running a story. I don't, I don't really know. But ultimately, he did not run it before the election. And then there's this tragic turn when on, on March 8th, Jeff Thomas takes his own life and Ryan Grimm then does run something. And I can, I can kind of understand why he does in, in the immediate aftermath. I mean, it's context now on, on this guy's death, which was, you know, his death was public. It was kind of picked up in lots of kind of gossip TMZ style publications because he was moderately famous, I would say. And Ryan writes a story saying, hey, this guy you've read about actually was in a kept relationship with Peter Thiel. And he describes, Grimm describes his interviews with Jeff and kind of mentions the democratic operation briefly. And that's kind of what set me on the story uh, in the first place to understand the story behind the story. Teddy, I know some people have been critical of Grimm's story for insinuating, perhaps, that that Teal was responsible in some way for contributing to whatever mental health crisis precipitated Thomas's death. I don't want to say whether that's a fair or unfair reading, but what is your own sense after digging into this more deeply, doing all of this reporting, whether it's fair to assign blame or responsibility for, for what happened here in any way? Look, I mean, why somebody takes their own life is... is to some extent impossible to ever know. You know, what I, what I can say is Jeff Thomas had mental health issues that he talked about publicly on Instagram well before any of these Democrats entered the picture. He had them well after. Drug use is a huge part of the story. We don't need to go into detail on, on every challenge that, that Jeff had before and after tw- the 2022 midterms. You know, I think it's fair to say that the stress of the progressive operation was was significant at the time. I mean, really in like November, December, it was significant. A lot happened between then and Jeff taking his own life in March. I, I don't know. The, the, the honest answer is I don't know. And, and, and to some extent, I don't know if we'll ever really know. But, you know, I mean, obviously, I think the Peter relationship gave him significant stress too, right? So to some extent, this story, I think, just shows the ways in which like political combat can like ensnare real people or frankly, just like personal combat. Like, I mean, Peter and, and David Brock and this guy Jack Bury and, and Jeff's family were all sort of like shadow boxing for six months, you know, still sort of are today. And real people are affected by these things. Like who's responsible? What would have happened in a hypothetical counterfactual world? Who the hell knows? But I, I hope that like the complexity and nuance comes across in the piece, which is not trying to assign blame but just trying to understand the world in which all these people were operating and the consequences were what they were. And I don't know if we'll ever really know why they were what they were. That's really well put. Teddy, last question for you. You talked to Teal himself briefly for this story. Do you think that everything that happened here played into his hesitance to be as big of a political influence in the 2024 race? It's a good question. Uh, Yes. So so Teal has a brief comment in the story saying um, in typical provocative fashion, which is kind of how Peter speaks publicly in, in general. I mean, he says that he he feels badly for Anita Hill, which Peter Thiel knows what he's, what he's doing there. Anita Hill, for anybody over the age of 40 listening to this podcast, you know, Peter uh, David Brock was a key opponent of Anita Hill when he was back when he was a Republican in, in the 1990s uh, confirmation hearing of Clarence Thomas. So Peter sort of referencing David Brock's past, I think is interesting. 
Peter is, is somebody who I think his political interests and moves have been widely misreported. Uh, you know, I know, I know, I disagree with lots of other mainstream media about this. You know, I, based on my reporting, you know, I often feel that his interest in kind of being a like partisan political player at least is like is not as significant as like many Republican fundraisers would really like it to be. He has no interest in being a part of the 2024 presidential cycle. You know, earlier this year, he kind of jettisoned his top political advisor at Teal Capital. I also reported earlier this year that he turned down an offer from the Trump super PAC to finance some early activities from them. I don't think those things are like directly related to to Jeff Thomas. I know he's very distraught about Jeff's death. And I think Peter has a lot going on right now. He's got kids he's trying to raise. I mean, he does have like kind of a party lifestyle that he enjoys that is unrelated to politics. So I agree with the consensus that he's not planning on being a big political player in 2024, but I just don't think it's a huge aberration from the past. And the the extent that this chills his activity, I think it just shows him kind of the real world impact of being in the public eye. Teddy, like I said, it's a really brilliant piece of reporting, really sensitively handled. And, and it's and it's really a fascinating tale, too, like you said, of how modern politics operates these days. Please go online and check that out if you haven't already. Teddy, thanks so much for stopping by. You bet. Coming up, Peter and Dylan talk about Bob Iger's new contract at Disney and the latest intel from Sun Valley. Welcome back to the Powers That Be, everybody. It's me, Peter, appearing in the B Block. This is rare, so you know it's special. Uh, I'm joined by Dylan Byers, who is in Sun Valley for the annual Billionaire Summer Camp, aka the Allen & Company Conference. Dylan, how many private jets did you see when you landed in Sun Valley? (laughs) Uh, They're stacked. They clog up the airport. They delay the commercial flights uh, coming in, but it is a small price to pay. (laughs) <laughs> for uh for, for a week for a week's worth of meetings that might otherwise might otherwise require trips to Silicon Valley and New York and Washington and so forth. So I, I, I'm willing to tolerate <laughs> the sheer opulent display of wealth. Yeah. So, you know, among the luminaries there, Jeff Bezos, Sam Altman, Bob Iger who I want to ask you about, actually, Dylan. But it, I just want to tell the audience first, we had a, a puck call with, with some members of our team yesterday, just internal stuff, and Dylan was in Sun Valley and was Zooming in or FaceTiming into the call and left wherever the main space of this meeting place was and was outside as far away as he could be as a reporter just to be safe. And even then, some random like security dude came up to you and was like, sir? Uh, are you on the phone right now? Who are you talking to? Is is the like security that intense? Like I know they don't have like press briefings for reporters, but like reporters are clearly milling around. They just don't want anyone taking pictures, I guess. Yeah. So I, I shouldn't overstate it. In many ways, this remains a very reporter friendly environment, but it has changed a lot over the course of the 40 years that it's been going on. There was a time before my time when reporters could go into the lodge go to the bar, buy drinks for some of these uh, moguls and executives. And and that was a level of access that they really cherished, even if they weren't invited to the panels and the dinners and things like that. It has changed markedly in recent years. Now you cannot go in the lodge as a reporter, uh, which is fine. I, I, you know, a lot of people bemoan that and, and don't come because of it. I actually 
find it to be fine. I go to a cafe just a stone's throw from the lodge and take my meetings there with executives who are sort of milling about outside all of the time and will run into you and see you. And if you have a relationship with them, as I do with some of them, are quite happy to spend 15 or 20 minutes touching base, which I find to be very useful. But there is a sense with like the increased sort of, I think, the general security anxiety in the world these days, particularly among this class, that yes, when I step outside and I raise my phone up to get on the Zoom call with you, Peter, that they are worried I might be taking photos. And this year, I would say for the first time, the security, even at a distance from the lodge, feels more intense than in years past. Well, just tell them you're talking to Peter Hamby and um, Bezos, <laughs> Bezos and I are tight. It'll be fine. Just kidding. So one thing I did want to ask you about, the board at Disney just voted, I think unanimously, to re-up Bob Iger's deal at Disney through 2026, basically another two years. This is a huge vote of confidence for Iger. That can't be a surprise, right? I mean, he came in and, you know, righted the ship after a difficult time, or it seems like he's riding the ship. It is a vote of confidence for Iger. It is also an acknowledgement that there is finding an Iger successor is incredibly hard. This is a guy who extended his contract in 2013, in 2014, I think twice in 2017. And then, of course, after finally identifying a successor in Bob Chapek, decided that Chapek couldn't do it and therefore came back to do it once again himself and is now extending his contract yet again. Disney's greatest asset is Bob Iger and his leadership, and everybody wanted him to stay and extend. On the other hand, I think there's an acknowledgement here that they have a real problem on their hands if they can't identify either a qualified internal candidate or a viable external candidate who can do this as well. Iger is not going to live forever. Uh, I was about to say he may not want to do this forever. All, all available evidence suggests that he actually does want to do this forever. Mm -hmm. But that is really what happened here. And even in the announcement, Iger himself said that you cannot overstate the importance of succession and of the leadership. So clearly what's happened here is what has happened in the past. They can't find that next person who they trust to take the reins. And so, so Iger sort of maintains this august position at Top Disney but those underlying problems for, for about the long term uh, remain. So I mentioned Sam Altman is there. Are people in Sun Valley talking about AI? Are people in Sun Valley talking about the writer's strike? Are people talking about you know how to make money on streaming? What's in the zeitgeist up there among the mogul set? Sure. I, I mean, the first thing I'd point out is, you know, there is the programming and what's being talked about on stage. But in large part, this is like, there are a lot of private conversations that have nothing to do with what the trade publications will tell you the people are talking about here. But yes, there are some overarching themes. There's the, there's the writer's strike. There is the question about the, the future of streaming. The pivot from linear to streaming is always a big issue. I think AI is certainly on everybody's mind. And in fact, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, I was told he was on stage today and had some actually rather insightful remarks about AI. And we'll see more of those throughout the week. Uh, Mark Andreessen and Peter Thiel were on stage talking about AI. They were also, um, I learned, Mark Andreessen gave a full-throated endorsement for the uh, possible cage fight between Mark oh, Zuckerberg God. and Elon Musk. Uh, yeah. And this was, obviously, this is something that I think a lot of people, Peter, that you and I talked to have looked at and said, my God, what a terrible 
example for, for the children. What a terrible way to go about conducting business affairs. And I think it's made us appreciate the actual adults in the room a little bit more, right? The Tim Cooks, the, the Sundar Pichais. Yeah. But Mark Andreessen's view was we should all be learning, you know, how to do martial arts because the world is becoming an increasingly violent and uncertain place. Whatever. Here, uh, <laughs> <laughs> both he and both he and Peter Thiel also stressed that everyone should be homeschooling their children because you can't trust the education system anymore. They are perhaps living on a different plane. <laughs> do these people have these people ever talked to a wage worker or someone who has a nine to five job that just can't homeschool their children? Yeah, I think I think they probably <laughs> uh, I'm guessing they probably enjoy living in a, a bubble <laughs> where uh, where that option is available to them. <laughs> anyway, conversations are married. And then, of course, there are sort of the more immediate concerns that sort of apply only to people in certain industries or people in just specifically at companies. The Iger contract extension is one such example that is probably finalizing that has probably taken up a great deal of his time. I certainly think, you know, the interpretation among most of the folks I've talked to since that was announced was that he didn't need to announce it in the middle of the summer, but he chose to do it here to sort of, you know, take the limelight at Sun Valley. Good on him. He's entitled to it. And then, you know, I think more immediately for our world back in LA, I think that there are sort of these perennial questions of M&A and, and when will Sherry Redstone finally decide it's time to sell Paramount? What are the Murdochs thinking about the future of Fox, which of course um, mm -hmm. does not have the scale of many of the other players? You know, Netflix, so funny, for a long time you came to Sun Valley Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos were like the cock of the walk and they were they were strutting here having, you know, revolutionized the industry. And then I recall last year how it was like the Netflix correction had happened. And all of a sudden, the question was like, maybe were they pursuing a potential acquirer now in the wake that sort of their fortunes have once again reversed. So those are the sort of undertones that are looming around the duck pond, as it were. <laughs> Dylan, I'll let you get back to your sourcing, but I do want to ask you because this feels like ground zero for, for puck junkies. How is the puck brand in Sun Valley? You know, I, I, not to scratch our own backs and toot our own horns here, but I will tell you, it's it's pretty impressive actually how many people here are aware of what we're doing and who are reading us not just regularly, but religiously. And I say that, would, and I, I hope that doesn't come off the wrong way. But seriously, I, it, it's it's sort of, we, we are obviously writing for this audience, among other audiences. And this audience is taking us quite seriously. And that's really, <laughs> it's actually, it, it's it's really wonderful to sort of come here among this group of very powerful and influential people and feel like they are reading you, Peter, they're reading, our, you know, Matt, our colleague Matt, they're reading Cohen, they're reading myself, and, and many of them are, that. you know, obviously Teddy, Teddy's piece uh, this week on Peter Thiel and David Brock was something that people talked to me unsolicited about, uh, and, and also even reading our political coverage, and that's, uh, you know, obviously that, uh, that's good for the ego. <laughs> Love to hear it. All right, buddy, uh, enjoy Idaho, and we will talk to you soon. Okay, talk to you soon, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, 
Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.